Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. You, it could be said that this republic needs a doctor and that many people in this republic need a doctor for more conventional reasons. And by the way, that's the Niels. Somebody once described them as sounding like a bowl of granola and M80s. That was me, actually, who did that. All right, so my name is Colin. I'll be your host today. Have you dined us with us before? Because we do things a little differently around here. So, yes, we have no particular plan <laughs> today. Uh, and we have no particular guests scheduled for today. We do have a phone line, which you can call 888-720-WNPR. 888-720-9677. I'm not even going to tell you why I'm laughing. So, uh, and uh, what else do you need to know? You need to know that uh, should we face a topic emergency, a topic shortage, I have a sealed envelope here from Mr. Carp who I've known since my college years and who was like the smartest person at Yale University while I was in college. Uh, and he, I don't know. I mean, I don't know what's in here. Uh, would somebody from the audience like to come up on stage here and just inspect this envelope to make it clear that I, it is sealed. I don't know what's in it. I think Mr. Carp maybe even put tape across. The, yeah, he did. All right. So um, we can always do that too. Oh, the way that that works though, you have to understand the rules, which I personally have made up is that uh, the Mr. Carb envelope will only be opened if someone calls in and asks for it to be opened. And then that person might have to participate briefly in a conversation with me about whatever the topics are. What's in here are newspaper clippings, I should say, newspaper clippings that Mr. Carp has deemed relevant, not necessarily as talk radio topics, but just he feels I should have them. And they're heavily underlined, too. I know that <clears throat> without having to open the envelope. All right, here we go. 
the number is 888-720-9677. And we have people calling in, uh, which is the plan. That's what they're supposed to do. And I think we should begin with Daniel from Windsor. Hi, Daniel. You're on the air. Hey there, Colin. First time uh, calling in, long time listener. Oh. So? <laughs> um, I, I should I should have said more. I should have, Thank you for your many years of listening, and I'm so glad that you found the initiative uh, today to call in. Well, right on. Um, so I wanted to pick your brain on something that's been bugging me for a while. So obviously we're coming up here on the, the anniversary of the January 6th insurrections. And I see a lot of talk going on about, um, you know, sort of, what went wrong, and, of course, voting rights. But one thing that I'm not sure I've seen a lot of, and I really wanted to get your take on, was the actual mechanics that were almost um, abused by Donald Trump and Mike Pence, specifically sort of how there was almost a constitutional crisis because, you know, Donald Trump wanted Pence to not certify the election. And no one's really talked about fixing, at least to my knowledge, fixing that actual mechanic or loophole that maybe might have been exposed. So I'm curious what your take is on that, and if you think that at some point that's something we should get to. Well, yeah, although, I mean, some of some of those mechanics are in the Constitution and require a, a constitutional amendment to change them. So it kind of depends on which mechanics we're talking about here. I, to me, I mean, it would be, maybe it does make sense to fix those mechanics, but to me, if we're talking about having members of the House vote to certify election results, you know, I mean, I think the the problem we need to address, I don't know how we address it. I mean, we've done nothing but try to address it for years now, is it's a worsening syndrome, which is that people don't act in good faith anymore. And they put party over country. They put party over fact and truth. I mean, 147 members of Congress voted not to accept the election results for no reason. <laughs> there was no there was no fact pattern out there that made that necessary. I mean, between January sixth and, and working back to early November, this had been investigated every which way. It had been in front of every you know every imaginable court uh, judges, many of them Trump appointees refused to yeah. side you know with the complaint and sometimes even rebuked the com- the republican complainants who were trying to undermine so i mean, if you get a, if you have a society where 147 members of congress will vote against election results uh you know for no reason other than it's convenient for them to do that i mean in a way you know when you're looking at something and asking yourself is this sliding into something that's not democracy something that's m- much more autocratic something that's a borderline dictatorship or a tyranny there's two real early questions you ask one of them is do election results stand in other words do election results determine who who sits in, in office and, and how how is violence incorporated or not incorporated into the political system? I mean, on January 6th, we failed, you know, one of those things. I mean, violence was drastically incorporated and we nearly failed the other one. But I don't, I don't know. I mean, the same people who voted not to certify that election result would probably vote against any structural reform. I don't know. What are your yeah, thoughts? That's terrifying. Yeah. <laughs> that's a terrifying. That's a terrifying thought. I, I mean, I think that I think that a lot of what you said is right, that um, it's just one of those things that a lot of the people that are currently representing us just aren't really 
aren't really representing the actual election results. Um, so I don't know. I, I don't know if you've talked to someone or have any conversations that have given you more hope. But, yeah, that's that's a scary sort of place to be. You know, I I, I don't I think everybody has to talk to everybody else. And, and I, obviously, or at least hopefully not in a screaming adversarial way. But, you know, I don't know. I had a little back and forth with, I guess, a former town council member from Glastonbury or something who was just on Twitter and we were commenting on some stuff. And and at one point I said, you know, um, I brought up some of these kind of national issues and she sort of said, well, those are national issues. I'm a Glastonbury Republican. I mean, these aren't really my problem. And, and my thought is everybody – that's why they're called grassroots, right? Everybody in the Republican Party who has any kind of conscience and wants this country to work – uh, the way it's supposed to work, should be making it clear that as far as anybody can tell, as far as they can tell, Biden was legitimately elected president. Those election results should be accepted. Uh, but, I mean, we saw polling over the weekend where a certain percentage of Republicans still think that Donald Trump should try to reclaim the presidency now. Uh, I can't remember what the percent was, but it was kind of alarmingly high. So, I mean, you know, with no election in sight, just, just try to get it back somehow. So, But I, I do think that what's really important is that people of conscience within the Republican Party, you know, constantly make it clear that they still want to participate in a system where, you know, the person who wins the majority of electoral votes wins the presidency. Um, and, and they're not really doing that. So... You know, that that's maybe a place to begin, just maybe a little tug on the sleeve of any Republican you know. They don't have to be an office holder, just any Republican saying that's the way it should be. It shouldn't be the way it's been. That's important. You know, that's an important thing to do. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I wish I, I had yeah, more. I think, no, that's fine. I think, I think the mechanical piece really scares me a lot. Um, obviously, I think the bigger sort of philosophical stuff, you can sort of uh, get pulled into – fights over dogma um, all day. But I think that the mechanic piece that there were some some clear sort of weaknesses that were exposed scares me a lot. <laughs> um, yes. Look, the weaknesses are now glaring weaknesses. They're weaknesses that, you know, that are – they're symptoms, to use the medical analogy, that are present in the body politic right now, you know, and they're not potential symptoms – they're, they're there right now. All right. I'm just going to keep going down the line here to Sheila and then to Matt. Everybody calling right now is from a town that begins with W. So Windsor, Wallingford, Waterbury, that's where people are calling from right now. Uh, you know, I, I hope we get a call from Willingworth and Wold Seabrook, all those towns. All right, Sheila, you have the floor. Hi. Thanks for taking my call, Colin. Um, and thanks for, you know, doing this topic again. Um, I'm usually not home, so I'm taking the opportunity. Um, over Christmas, we had a little conversation at dinner time. It was about um, common sense gun laws or the lack of them, and it, um, you know, it's just been so discouraging um, that the progress has not been. You know, we've not taken that leap to get rid of certain guns, semi-automatics, you know, all the things that people talk about. And the violence continues and mass shootings um, here in Connecticut. We know only too well, um, you know, how impactful it is. So, you know, I kind of been thinking and I've 
thought over the last couple of years, but um, it came up again at Christmas. Why, why, with all these wonderful common sense gun law advocacy groups, why do you think it is that none of them have joined forces into one, combined into one? I feel like we need one that is for common gun, you know, gun sense laws to beat the one that's not. You know, I, you know, and I hate to, I didn't ever want to go there, but I feel like it's at this point we need that. And I wondered if you'd heard anything in your circles, in the media, you know, local, national. Has anybody ever talked about it Did, in that way? Say it again. Talk, talked about what? Talked about joining. So you've got the Brady, the, the Brady group. You've got Connecticut guns, you know. Mm-hmm. Against violence, Gifford, Sandy Hook. There's a, there's a million. You know, I, I'm exaggerating, but but there's one NRA. Right. So yeah, it's it's an interesting question, and and I, I don't I don't have an answer to it, and I don't know anything about it necessarily. I don't think it's necessarily the case that there is greater strength. In, in having just one organization or I guess as you're suggesting maybe a, a coalition uh, of organizations with similar interests. I mean in a way you're kind of putting all your eggs in one basket when you do that. Um, I'm guessing that a lot of these organizations talk to the same members of Congress. I'm sure they all talk to Chris Murphy. Uh, you know, I, They're all aware of each other. I, I don't know. It, it might not I I understand the point you're making now, and and you might be right, but I don't think it's axiomatic that if if they all worked together, you know, if they all combined and sort of did the same thing, it it would be better. I mean, maybe they're better off. I mean, you know, look at the Remington victory uh, here in Connecticut. Maybe they're better off pursuing. I mean, I I think one thing that we can say is that somehow or other, the people who support uh, um, fairly untrammeled gun rights have now disconnected reality from their from their principle or their belief their kind of first principle you know which is you know i mean if you talk to people anybody even a gun rights nut uh, <laughs> i shouldn't put it that way but you know i mean if you ask them look do you think we should do anything we can to keep guns out of the hands of criminals they'll they'll say yes oh yeah we should definitely do that uh, I don't think there are too many people, even you know, NRA, NRA card holders, who would say no, no, I don't think so. I think criminals have the same rights to guns <laughs> as everybody else. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I mean, so, but what's happened somehow is is that reality uh, has become disconnected from principle, and I think in that situation, it's really kind of hard to change minds because it's not like an additional set of facts is going to make a difference at that point. But um well yeah, go ahead. Well there are facts and there are there are um made up facts and you know the constitution is a fact but it was written in a time where those facts were different than they are now, you know. And so I, I hear you. I, I know I've been in you know I've environmental organizations and if you don't always see have the same focus point as or point of view, things can get muddled. Um, and so I think when I'm really, if we're talking through it, thinking about a, one coalition that fights the exact, from the exact point of view as the NRA, which is, it's our constitutional right to have a gun. And it is. I, I'm not against guns. You know, I'm just would like things, my children and your children and 
my daughter's children not to have to go to school and worry about, you know, violence with guns. And and, and inner city, there shouldn't be the kind of gun availability that there is now. Um, there's, it's a compli- but that's that's the point. It's very complicated. But that, but uh, yeah, I thought I'd throw it out there and maybe enter it into the conversation and maybe somebody else will pick up on it. Yeah. I'm going to yeah. write some letters, Colin. Write some letters. Write some letters. Uh, you, okay. In the words of Groucho Marx, I'm not in the habit of making threats, but there will be a strongly worded letter in the New York Times about this tomorrow. So, um, yeah, I mean, look, you know, there's there's so much that, that one could say about all this. But t- one of the things that I think is somewhere in the American psyche is the notion of kind of an allowable death total in, in for some reason or in some sector, not just in this one, too. But there's sort of a sense that a certain kind of death uh, uh, is breakage. You know, it's just kind of priced into – people's understanding of the society, you know, and that, that can be gun deaths, deaths of people of color, deaths of people in urban environments, deaths from COVID. There are people who just sort of decide, well, you know, it's, yeah, I know 825,000 people have died from this disease, but I still don't think it's really that serious. I think this is just sort of the kind of thing that goes on. A lot of them are old, they're in nursing homes, whatever, you know, and, and I think it is, it used to be the kind of thing where people are going to die, you know, was sort of a trump card, right? You should pardon the expression. People are going to die was something that you couldn't necessarily ignore, whatever you're talking about. Uh, and, and you know, always, always in the history of, of American society, pretty, well, I don't know if always, but for a long time in the history of American society, there's been an understanding that, yes, a certain number of deaths really is kind of allowable. I mean, one of the things that is done kind of on an actuarial basis is the calculation of how much a regulatory change uh, would cost and how many deaths it would prevent. And if it costs like a billion dollars and only prevent three deaths, you know, they don't do it. Um, <laughs> I'm picking very extreme numbers. But there's some kind of magic number. It's like, okay, this is what a life, what saving a life is worth. And if it costs more than that, uh, then it's not worth doing. And we, we've taken that kind of actuarial logic and just in a way, thrown out the logic part of it and just said, well, a bunch of people are going to die from guns. Uh, a bunch of people are going to die in cities. Uh, a bunch of people of color are going to die way sooner than comparable uh, people, uh, white people. Um, and, you know, and we're just kind of okay with that. I mean, just the, the way the world works. Sorry about it, you know. Uh, and, and I don't know. I mean, it's, it's a, I'm laughing. It's appalling. But it is, in fact, the way people increasingly think. And I mean, and, and it is you can't to the people who want to minimize the importance of January 6th, you can't say, you know, that you, know, you can't say the number of policemen who died, the number of um, police officers who suffered serious injuries, the ones who took their lives afterwards as a pretty obviously directed consequence uh, or contributed to, contributory consequence anyway uh, of what they went through. It just didn't mean anything. They don't go, OK, well, fine. And then. Some cops died. So what? You know, <laughs> it's, the, it's the price of having a democracy where you can storm the Capitol. Uh, you know, and at a certain point, it's harder and harder to have that conversation. And and, and never has it been harder. I mean, you know, I, I absolutely do think and I think his staffers have said that the absolute worst days of the Obama presidency were the days in which he realized that Sandy Hook was not going to result 
in, to use the caller's phrase, common sense gun control, that that was not going to happen, that, that, that Obama's sense of despair uh, and cynicism was never more acute than it was there, as well it might be, you know? So anyway, all right. Let's go to another W town. Our number is 888-720-WNPR, 888-720-9677. You, can bring, you don't have to bring up things in the news. You can bring up deep philosophical questions, cultural matters, you know, everyday living issues. I, I'm happy to talk to you about anything. I'm, I'm at your disposal. 888-720-WNPR. Let's move on to Matt in Waterbury. Hi, Matt. Hey, Colin. How are you? I am just fine. Good. Uh, quick question. I kind of want to hear your opinion as to when we will actually get around to account, uh, uh, appointing a special counsel to investigate the criminal aspects of January 6th. Uh, it's becoming increasingly apparent that the Republicans, if they take over the House of Representatives, that they certainly will do everything within their power to squelch the investigation. And as we saw with Mueller and uh, and now Durham, um, they're you know once they're appointed, you really can't get rid of them. So in order to get a full accounting, I'm curious what your opinion would be. Yeah, I, I'd have to go back and look at the threshold, the threshold question for you know when you, when you appoint a special counsel. Um, and because there, I mean, you can't. My recollection is that you can't just do it because you feel like it. Uh, so, I, but I can't answer that question intelligently until I actually look at. And, and also, the special counsel law, as you probably know, was revised uh, pretty extensively. So, I'd want to look at that first and see. I mean, there's, to my way of thinking, anyway, what the what the special committee is doing right now is what a special counsel would do. Uh, I don't know that a special counsel would be in a position to do a, a deeper dive than you know than than what this committee is doing right now. The stuff that the committee is turning up, it's almost on a daily basis, is pretty shocking uh, and, and pretty troubling. Uh, I, I think the larger question might be, well, I don't know, I, I don't know what to think actually, but um, but yeah, given the relative. Given the relative ease with which we got one for Durham's investigation, I mean, it would seem that that bar is set pretty low. Yeah, I, I just before I opined about it, I would just want to refresh my memory about you know what the actual threshold is. But meanwhile, okay. I would just encourage people to watch what this committee is turning up, and and we're we're just getting the tip of the iceberg right now. There's there's more all the time, uh, and and it, it you know everything kind of points in the direction of much more coordination and planning uh, between elected Republican officials, including President Trump himself, uh, and, and the rioters than had been previously owned up to. So, uh, so yeah, I don't would know. You guess, hmm? Would you guess that it's actually harder to, like, you know, right now they're kind of all blowing off the subpoenas that they're getting from Congress. A number of Republicans have just said, look, I'm, I'm not going to come for one reason or another. Would it be more difficult to simply ignore if it were coming from a special counsel. Yeah, I, I'm also, I don't feel like I know the answer to that question. But look, you ignore a subpoena at your peril. You wind up in court if you ignore a subpoena. I mean, you know, it, 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 I don't think it's, I don't think it's not perilous to do. Uh, and, you know, I mean, with this committee, I mean, ignoring a subpoena has contempt of court uh, or contempt of Congress in this case, Charges just you know automatically linked to it. So I, I don't know, but it is sort of true that these things happen, and then you, the next thing you know, Steve Bannon is kind of prancing around in his usual disheveled hor horribleness. I mean, you know, you, today it's been suggested, it's been reported, I think, by Axios 
that he and one or two other people are actually going to do kind of counter-programming on January 6th, that they somehow or other are going to stage some kind of big event. I don't, I don't even know. What could this <laughs> what could this event be? What could the counter-programming be? An all-star tribute to the rioters? Uh, the you know, deplorable. Yeah, the featuring Kid Rock and stuff? I, I don't know. They might not even be able to get Kid Rock to do that. All right, we have to take a little break. I'm sorry I'm not more responsive on that question. I just, I just feel like radio, particularly radio like this where there's no guests and stuff like that, way too comfortable um, just sort of saying, oh, yeah, let's do it that way. <laughs> um, maybe even during the break I can try to figure this out. Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. ECMO is a leading-edge, life-saving treatment for patients with cardiac or respiratory failure. Dr. Jason Gluck, director of the Mechanical Circulatory Support Program and Emergency Cardiac Care at Hartford Hospital, explains what it is. So ECMO stands for extracorporeal membrane oxygenation, outside the body oxygenation of blood. It's a life support technique that's used by highly sophisticated medical systems for patients with severe heart or lung failure. The technique involves removing blood from the body, oxygening it, and then returning it back. ECMO procedures happen in the ICU, but not all hospitals are equipped with the necessary technology and staff. Dr. Gluck describes Hartford Hospital's ECMO Go Team. So ECMO is considered when treatments have failed, and in our center, with a special ECMO on the go team, we'll actually take that technology to their hospital and help them out there if they need to to stabilize the patient and then bring them back to heart for recovery. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health. It's Andrew Bird. We need more whistling on the show, I feel. We did a whole episode about whistling. It's one of my favorite episodes ever, really. It was many years ago, but we need more whistling uh, on the show. All right. So I was able to sort of refresh my memory. And so here's, I think, the problem. So to appoint a special counsel has to be appointed by the attorney general. The attorney general or who is ever acting in place of a recused attorney general. But in this case, I think it would be Merrick Garland. Uh, you know, he would have to say that something needs to be investigated. There needs to be a criminal investigation that for some reason or other cannot be done by the Department of Justice without there being a conflict of interest. Um, I mean, that's sort of what it comes down to. I'm not really sure – there's a rationale there, you know. Let me just look at the second part uh, of the guidance on it. 
Um, yeah, conflict of interest in the DOJ and that it would be in the public interest to appoint an outside special counsel, blah, blah, blah. I don't think this – I don't think that meets the threshold. So and, – and, and I mean, you know, the DOJ has been able to – prosecute these people pretty effectively. I mean, you can you can sort of say they're not getting the sentences that you'd kind of hope people like that would get, but it's not the DOG, DOJ's job to arrive at sentences that we would like. Uh, they've also decided to do stuff like not invoke the domestic terrorism law that allows for an intensification of an existing sentence for a recognized crime. Uh, it's kind of a sentence enhancement provision. They they haven't gone that route for whatever reason. But yeah, I don't, I don't think you can get a special counsel in this unless they're unless I'm missing something, which wouldn't be you know all that unusual. All right, so we're we're uh, all right. Let's go. Let's go to we had a good streak of towns that begin with W. But Sean is calling from Pauling, New York. Although considering the truth and fact are no longer acknowledged in America. We can say that he's calling from Walling, New York. Uh, all right, Sean, uh, you have the floor. Thank you very much. Uh, this is my first time listening to your show. I, I was listening as I'm driving in the car. Um, quick side note, if I could, mm-hmm. I appreciate what you said about President Obama and Sandy Hook. My cousin is a teacher at Sandy Hook and was there that day. Um, so I, I appreciate you shining a light on that. Yeah, I mean, um, I just to sort of say one more thing about this. The problem with this was, I mean, you know, I, as a journalist here in Connecticut, uh, I, I'll never forget that day. And it was, I think, for everybody who had to deal with it in any way, it was a horribly scarring event. And, and you know, it's kind of like you, you sort of have to get rid of the whole idea of their speaking of thresholds, there being a threshold at which point the country has to act. Because that if that's not the threshold— you know, if those kids and teachers going into work uh, or going into school on a normal school day and, and 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 dying, if that's not the threshold at which you say, all right, this has really gone too far, we're really going to have to do something, then, then there isn't one. You know, I mean, you can think of all the stuff that's come after, whether it's Orlando or, or, or Las Vegas or whatever, you know, higher body counts, whatever. There isn't a threshold. There isn't a point at which people say, this is too horrific. We've got to do something. Uh, I mean, the people who think that already think that, uh, and the people who don't think that are never going to think that. All right, I'm I'm sorry to interrupt you. Yeah, no, no, that that's actually a good segue into what I was thinking about. You you mentioned philosophical questions, and I I asked myself, well, what is the the philosophical view of our culture these days? If I were to try and put it into a single word, it would be greed. You know, greed for not just material resources, but greed for power greed for influence. And and I think it applies to what you just said, because there's no threshold, because people just want, I want what I want at any cost. It doesn't matter if, if children are shot to death. I want my guns, you know, and, and I think that's the kind of attitude. And I see it from either side of the political spectrum. You know, conservatives are greedy to have it the way they want and nothing else, and there, there's no compromise, just gimme, gimme, gimme. And I see that often from the liberal side as well. And so it makes me start to think, you know, what what is really driving our culture other than that? Is there anything to do with good moral qualities of the heart anymore? You know, we say that we stand for freedom and equality and liberty and so forth, but those things need to be maintained through our actions. 
Yeah, I would. I, I would agree with you. Are they, the only way that I would sort of fine tune what you're what you're saying, and it could be just as a result of a lot of books that are coming out right now. And I just got through reading Elizabeth Colbert's uh, piece in the New Yorker, where she looks at a lot of the books uh, that are coming out right now that sort of raise questions about what's going on uh, with our demo- democracy and the fraying uh, of the fabric. And and you know, I think the other possible a- answer is that we're dominated by tribalism. That w- winning against the other side, owning the libs, to use the conservative expression, has become more important than anything else. And and she begins her review. It's terrific. She begins uh, her review with, with apparently this sort of true story that took uh, place in 1954 uh, in uh, in Oklahoma, I think, where these uh, two groups of boys went to a summer camp. They didn't know about each other's existence. Uh, they were in cabins where you couldn't see the other cabin. And, and they were there for quite a while, kind of, you know, forming a, a group identity. And then they found out the existence of this other group and they just decided they just hated them. <laughs> they they wanted to beat them in various games and get mad if they didn't win. There, it just doesn't take that. If you ever played pickup basketball, you know, it, it really is sort of true that, uh, you know, if you're playing five on five you know, you have to give up the court when you lose. Uh, the amount of team identity that can happen in the matter of seven or eight sweaty minutes, you know, is kind of amazing. And, and I do think that our, our the, the subgroup identity of the two political parties has become more important than the, the kind of uber identity uh, of the country in the ways that you're talking about. And, and I think in that situation, it's hard, it, it's hard to make common cause, even about things we should easily make common cause about. You get the last word. You know, and that's a good – I really appreciate that thought and it's a good analogy. Um, what I would say – now, full disclosure, I consider myself to be a very liberally-minded person. Mm-hmm. And I absolutely refuse to vote for anyone who would be involved with Trump. That said, I, I see from the side that I do support with my vote, the, the Democratic side, the liberal side, that – even though I agree with the goal of the, we, we should all be equal under the law. We should all, all have equal opportunity and, and the same right to vote and representation and so forth. But I think that their method for trying to achieve that has become a bit faulty. Because what I see is there's a lot of uh, accentuating differences. And I, I believe it's unintended. You know, the, you know uh, I'm this person is identifying as transgender or this person's identifying as, you know, such and such category in this category, they're breaking everybody out into categories that are distinguished by their differences. And I think that that increases the type of tribalism that you're talking about. And I don't believe that's their intent. I think it's a, just a mistake of method. But the way to bring us together, I think, is to find our commonalities. Well, what you're talking about, I think, is identity politics. Uh, and, yeah. I, you know, I, I think identity politics are, the, are for the most part, they may be an effective way of mobilizing certain bases uh, in certain situations, but they're not an effective way to govern. And, and I think long term, they're not even an effective way to conduct partisan politics. I mean, they may be a legitimate minor component in certain situations. Um, you know, you would you would like to have... Uh, a, a system of governance and a group of people in positions of power who could rectify some of the problems of the past or make sure that we didn't have a, another George Floyd summer, you know? Um, right. uh, you, you'd like to do that. And to do that requires some kind of a reckoning about identity. But uh, I, I would agree that basing 
pol- politics and political strategy and political rhetoric, you know, chiefly on identity is a mistake. Um, and and both sides do it. I mean, the 2016 Trump campaign was identity politics. It was white identity politics. It was you white people. Uh, there are a lot of people who want to take away stuff that's kind of basically been baked into your lives. Uh, and whether it's uh, immigrants to set up uh, another call we're going to go to in a, a few minutes, whether it's whether it's immigrants or transgender people or, uh, you know, or people of color, um, you know, the, the hegemony that you've enjoyed, not that they would use that word, is imperiled. So, I mean, you know, to see, I, it's absolutely the case that identity politics is kind of out of control in the Democratic Party and on the left. But it, it's also very much the fuel of what we've seen on the right. Uh, and so I wouldn't want to, you know, put the disease only on one side. All right. I think what we should do is take a break. This, this show is like just going very fast. I feel like we're just kind of getting warmed up here. Uh, but when we take a break, uh, I will organize my thoughts or fail to organize my thoughts. And we'll come back. That sounds like a plan. Drown me in the Jordan when they tried to wash me clean. They got the stains out, but now it's too damn hard to breathe. They told me he's a good lord as they tied the shackles to my feet. All right, we're back. Time to thank Kat Pastor. She's our technical producer today and every day. Uh, and Jonathan McPants is the person in there screening the calls and trying to uh, help me make this whole format work. It's called Ask or Tell Me. Ask or Tell Me Anything? Is that what it's called? <laughs> anyway, people call in 888-720-WNPR. Right, we're going to get to a couple more calls we have up on the board. I wanted to say a couple more things apropos of what Sean said. Because first of all, I'm surprised that we're not talking about this moment in COVID. Uh, I mean, we just broke a record that you never want to break. Uh, yesterday, uh, it was a million, a million point something, one, one, a million point something uh, case, COVID cases uh, which in this country, which is not only a record for us, uh, but it's a record for the world. In fact, I think the, our previous record was like 590,000 cases in one day. So, <laughs> so and I think the... The competing country with the most cases in one day is India, and they had like 414,000 cases in one day. This is – I don't have my tablet in front of me, but I think it's something like that. So we went over a million yesterday. Uh, So USA, USA. (laughs) Um, I'm surprised we're not talking about that, that the callers aren't, but I don't don't tell the callers what to say. But – one thing that I do think, apropos of COVID and everything else, and it kind of gets into Sean's question a little bit, and maybe some of the other people who called, is we got to get better at admitting we're wrong, when we're wrong, uh, and, and to do it in a very open way. And we've got to get better at accepting it when people say, oh, I was wrong. Uh, and I mean, I, I think in COVID, just for example, I, I'm stealing this idea from Andy Slavitt, who was uh, one of the heads of, uh, of Biden's initial um, uh, COVID work groups, whatever, whatever it was called. And before that, I think it was he was Obama's like Ebola guy or something. Uh, and Andy has a, a podcast called In the Bubble. And this is a point that he made. He said, we got to get better 
just saying, okay, I was wrong about that. We were wrong about that. Because one of the problems we're having right now is that when things change, as they will in an an evolving situation, you know, you want to be able to incorporate new information without that amounting to a loss of face. So, I mean, it should be much easier for the medical establishment uh, to say, you know what, when we were first reporting the results of vaccine trials and stuff like that, we, we may have misled people or we may have just been wrong about the protection from infection afforded by the vaccines. What the vaccines do incredibly well is prevent serious symptom displays, pre- prevent hospitalizations, prevent deaths. That's what they do. Uh, we probably made it sound like you just wouldn't ever test positive. That's just not the way it works. If we said that, we were wrong. Um, and it should be possible for them to say that and not feel like they're losing faith. And it should also be possible for people maybe kind of on the other side of of scientific uh, ideology, which unfortunately there is. There's scientific ideology now. Uh, there's like bioscience ideology. It should be the, uh, possible for the people who question the government's policies around something like COVID. It should be possible for those people to say, oh, okay, thank you. That helps me understand what's going on right now. But what happens instead is if anything changes, and I, we can use the vaccine thing as an example, again, although there are plenty of other examples, uh, if anything changes, you know, if Fauci says something different from what he said two months ago, um, and and by the way, uh, you know, props to Fauci. He's a terrific guy. He's, his service to the country is beyond question. I, I've come to the conclusion he was really the wrong guy to be the sort of public point person on this. He just makes too many of those kinds of mistakes and doesn't explain them well and doesn't correct them all that well. But but in any case, that shouldn't matter. You should be able to say, okay, we got it wrong. Here's, here's how we see it now. And that shouldn't uh, ratchet up the questioning of scientific truth. And that's the problem. And, and as a result, both biosciences and I think the press to a certain degree, I think we sort of minimize it. You know, we don't communicate it very well. We don't say, you know what? They got it wrong. Uh, we told you the wrong stuff, too. What we should have emphasized. I mean, like, here's the here's the number you want to know today. And this is like a real number. Uh, roughly uh, uh, 70 percent. I think it's 68.8. But roughly 70 percent of the people hospitalized for COVID symptoms in Connecticut are unvaccinated. So it's almost 70 percent. Now, the popul- in the popula- general population, the number of people who are unvaccinated is around 25%. So 25% of the population is making up 70% of the hospitalizations. When you know that, you know vaccines work. <laughs> you, you know, that, you know that vaccines are, in fact, preventing serious symptom uh, patterns and, and hospitalization among the people who, who are fully vaccinated. Um, but, I mean, it's also okay to just say, look, we, 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 we told you something that isn't exactly right. We made it sound like you would never test positive or you'd never have any kind of symptoms or, or, or that's not how the vaccine works. And some of it is because of the transmission dynamics of the specific disease and the vaccine itself. And, um, and, and we got to get better at that. And then people have to, have to get better at accepting it instead of saying, oh, well, if you're wrong about that, then you're wrong about everything else. And we should never have to listen to you at all because you don't know what you're talking about. And I have a great immune system and I'm not getting vaccinated and I'm going out to the bar tonight with no mask on because you got something wrong. Uh, I mean, that's one of the reasons 
that people are reluctant to admit they are wrong. All right. Enough. Enough for me. Let me go to the phones. In South Windsor, we have Gru uh, calling us. Hi, you're on the air. Hello, Colin. How are you? Good. Yeah. So I just had uh, two points that I wanted to just share with you guys. Um, and a little bit premise before that. Uh, uh, I am from India. I work here in South Windsor as an engineer for a, for a really nice company. And, uh, you know, being an immigrant or so-called legal immigrant here uh, in America, uh, they, um, you know, I've seen this, this trend or, you know, this, this thing happening right now that we are short of a lot of, you know, high skilled labor as well as all sorts of labor. But, but then, you know, every time I get a call from a recruiter or somebody, as soon as I tell them that I might need a sponsorship in the future, the answer is, look, Oh, we don't work with that. So, so right now we are in trouble, and then there are people who are available to work here. Um, I don't know why government is not, you know, sort of helping get more and more labor, like you know, workforce in there. Uh, instead of instead of doing that, actually, American consulate in India they are they are stopping work visa interviews. They are letting students in, they are letting tourists in, but I don't know, they are not probably, you know, giving more appointments for work visa. So that was the first part. Um, and the second part is still we, like, it's 2022, and we still face a humongous pay gap between, you know, I don't know, uh, a lot of lot of people, like, uh, especially, uh, like, Im- immigrants who are working in the tech sector still. So it's... Uh, you know, it's frustrating and confusing at the same time. So what, what I hope is some of our friends uh, who are working with the recruiters or who are recruiters who are listening, uh, work in HR, they can, they can provide sort of insight why this happens and, you know, how can we, how can we resolve all of this? Yeah, I mean, it seems to me that um, a lot of this, particularly the first part of your question anyway, well, all of it comes down to dollars, right? It comes to dollars and cents. And, and you know, if it's going to cost $3,500 extra to hire a person because of sponsorship costs or, or whatever, you know, I mean, a lot of companies are just going to say, well, we're, that's not in our budget. You know, this is what our budget is. Our budget is we're going to hire somebody and we're going to pay them X amount of money. So, uh, but you're also right that it gets starts to look especially crazy uh, in the middle of a labor shortage, a generalized labor shortage, and then a shortage of particular particular kinds of skilled labor, uh, and 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 also just a massive job burnout problem that's that's exacerbating uh, the labor shortage. It seems like you know we it ought to be made a little bit easier uh, to maybe get talented, skilled people like you into the mix. And, and I, I just don't know enough about this to say much more that's intelligent about it. But I would I would agree with your point anyway, you know. And I think companies did the – I think also, you know, a lot of times the first person who hears about this in a company isn't maybe the person who ultimately can take a broader view and say, well, wait, you know, this guy grew. He's exactly what we're looking for. So what if it costs us $3,500 more? <laughs> so what if it takes like, you know, a few extra weeks while we, we, we sort this out? That's the guy we want. So let's just do it. I mean, we'll get the 3500 back when he shows up and starts doing a really great job for us. So, I mean, in some ways you, you, need, you need that corporate culture too in addition to maybe the government softening the blow. I don't know. You know more about this than I do. What, do you, what are your thoughts? My, my thoughts are fairly simple. I mean, you know, the, I, I, I've been working with some of the teams 
you know, recruiting teams and whatnot. And and I think the cost to, you know, go and, like, you know, search for another candidate is more than that $3,500 sometimes. I mean, it depends on the position. And that that happens quite often here. Uh, and and still, you know, there, there should be sort of a safety net that government builds that, okay, we are, we are bringing in more labor. It, it should be easier for them you know, sort of blend into the workforce. And uh, touching on the philosophical side of that, like, you know, being from India, we have been always, always been taught, like, the whole world is your family, help them out. But I, I, I think the other side doesn't see it that way because, you know, one of the, one of the polit- big political party in America says that, oh, we are okay with legal immigrants, uh, which, is, which is such a, such a BS concept. You know, all immigrants are immigrants. Uh, that's what I think. But, uh, they like even that party does not try to look into this issue, like how to how to fold in, um, you know, this kind of workforce. On yeah. the other side, when when we come in as international student, we get like four times, like four, we pay four times the fees. So, well, assuming yeah, just, assuming I'm just going to cut you short because we're almost out of time here. Um, as a matter of fact, I, I'm I'm I can't take another call, I guess. But um, but yeah, assuming the conditions that exist right now persist. There's never been a better time to renegotiate uh, all kinds of aspects in America uh, of employment practice and employment law. Uh, There's such a tremendous incentive to be able to have more people, uh, a greater pool of applicants to hire from or any applicants in some cases to hire from. It's a great time to start reexamining these questions, kind of opening up that book and looking at it again. I'm sorry I didn't get to Pam's question. She wanted to say as a scientist, science isn't wrong. It changes. But when you're communicating with the public about science, you have to be really careful about this, particularly in an era where 45 seconds of a presentation that you make can be excerpted into a single YouTube clip and then played over and over again for months and months and months. So there's like a clip of Fauci early in the pandemic saying asymptomatic transmission has never driven a pandemic. You know, it's very unlikely that asymptomatic transmission is a big part of this because there's never been a pandemic that's had that. Well, I mean, there's people still circulating in that clip. I mean, since then, obviously, he's revised his thinking. But you shouldn't say something that dispositive so early. It's a kind of mistake that Fauci routinely makes. And it is kind of wrong. It's wrong to say that when you don't really know that that's the case. All right. I'm being told that the show is over, which I actually kind of know, too. Anyway, thanks to everybody who helped out. And sorry the show went by so fast. has been disconnected.